And Lord, as we turn to your word, Lord, we just ask that you open our eyes. Lord, give us spiritual sight. Uh, Lord, unblock our ears. Lord, we hear so much from this world. Um, but Lord, we pray this morning that you would, through your word, Lord, that is sharper than any two-edged sword, that you would just cut through all the noise of the world, all the influence of the world, and you'd speak to our hearts, stir our hearts, Lord. May we grow this morning in knowledge and in grace. Lord, make us more like Jesus, we pray. Um, Father, as your word says, Lord, that we should be um, looking at Jesus as if we were looking into a mirror and see that reflection. Oh, Father, please just do that work in us, we pray for your glory. And we just give you this time now in Jesus name. Okay, well, we're going to move on this morning in our study of uh, First Peter. Um, It has taken us longer to get through the first chapter than I originally planned or intended. But I think there's a lot that's been coming out, and I hope that you've been uh, blessed and encouraged by it. Um, so we're just going to carry on. I'm going to read through from the beginning of chapter one. Um, it doesn't hurt just to let these things really sink in. Uh, and then we're going to pick up our study from verse 17, which is where we've got to. Um, but if you've got your Bibles, then just turn to First Peter uh, chapter one, and we read, uh, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> To the strangers scattered throughout Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Asia and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace unto you and peace be multiplied. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that fades not away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time, wherein you greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, you are in heaviness through manifold temptations, that the trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold that perishes, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honour and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen you love, in whom, though you see him not, yet believing you rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the the end of your faith, even the salvation of of your soul. And I just want to pause at this point just to remind you again those three things that Peter's alluded to in those verses we've just read that you know salvation is for those who love and believe in Jesus Christ. And it has a past tense to it that as verse 3 reminds us he has given us new birth. It's done. It's unconditional as we were saying earlier on. But it's also present tense that it says through faith that we are now shielded by God's power. And then it's also future, that it's the inheritance that we look forward to, which is going to be revealed in the last time. Of course, that's the the goal of our faith, that past, present and future uh, aspect of salvation. It's all part of this wonderful work that God is doing and has done and will do. And then Peter carries on and says, of which salvation, and this is what we looked at last week, the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace of that should come unto you. We are the beneficiaries of what they spoke, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ, which was in them, did signify, 
When he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. And he spoke both of his sufferings and of the glory. And we looked at that in, in detail last week. And unto whom it was revealed that not unto themselves, but unto us, they did minister the things which are now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven, which things the angels desire to look into. And I just emphasized last week, again, the, the incredible privileged position that we have, that these prophets, that Isaiah, that Jeremiah, that Daniel, David, and so many in the Old Testament, they prophesied and they ministered to us. What an incredible privilege we have. The, the, the things they recorded, the things they wrote, weren't just for their benefit. In fact, many of the things they recorded, they didn't fully understand. It was for our benefit, upon whom the ends of the world are come, as we're told in Scripture. Now, again, the angels are looking forward to understanding these things. And as the, the New Testament has been written, as the churches understood more of God's plan, so they start to understand this infinite wisdom that God had in establishing the church. And the other point of this verse we highlighted last week, and it's so important just to mention again, that we have the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven to be with us as our companion forever. The church has this unique privilege. Unlike the saints in the Old Testament who received the Holy Spirit for a work, for a time, uh, Bezalel, the, the chap who helped design the tabernacle, the temple, and all the bits, uh, all the bits that went into the tabernacle, uh, the Holy Spirit came upon him and gave him wisdom and so on. You know, you think of people like Samson who God used. Saul had the Spirit of God for a time until he forfeited and blew it. David, of course, had the Holy Spirit of God and so many of the prophets. But it was for a limited time. It wasn't necessarily the entirety of their lives. Um, uh, yeah, for us, for you and I, we are given the Holy Spirit when we're born again forever. That's what we're told in John's Gospel. And it's an incredible gift. We can't lose the Holy Spirit. You know, we, we may get lost in our own um, uh, mind's heart sometimes. We get confused. We get, you know, uh, not sure which term we've taken. But we, we, we can never lose the Holy Spirit. He's with us for eternity. And we should never underestimate that blessing. And we're told, therefore, wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind. Now, these are the five things we looked at last time specifically. Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind. Be sober was the second thing. You know, to, to, to think with clarity, not being influenced by the world in any way. Don't be intoxicated by the things of the world. And hope to the end for the grace. Always looking forward to the goal. You know, it's very difficult to hit a target. If you're not looking at the target, some of you um, may have you know, some sort of understanding of this. But um, back in the day when I used to ride motorbikes, um, they used to tell you when you were going around a corner, always look ahead, look the distance. You typically look, you look for the apex of the bend, wherever the the, you know, the furthest point away is where the bend starts to, to, to kind of turn. You know, if you look close to you, if you kind of look down at your front wheel, very often you'll, you'll mess the bend up. You won't get it right. And it's so important that you look to the distance. It helps us to, to chart the course we're on now. Uh, and it may be a poor analogy, but it's kind of the idea that we need to be looking to the future. And I quoted that verse last time from Proverbs 29, uh, verse 18, I believe it is, that, you know, without vision, people cast off restraint. My paraphrase of that is if you've got nothing to aim at, you get sloppy. You know, if there is no goal, it's very difficult to, to be motivated to go towards something. We need to be looking to the grace uh, that the, the end, the hope that we have. And we're told that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's, Peter speaks a lot about the return of Jesus. He was so uh, excited uh, and looking forward to, with all the trials he'd gone through and things he knew that he would yet face. 
And then we're told as obedient children, we are to be not fashioning yourselves according to the former lust. Don't live like we did previously before we came to know Christ. You know, in your ignorance is what Peter says. Yeah, we were ignorant. We didn't understand the difference in a sense truly between right and wrong. We didn't understand God's ways as opposed to our ways. But he, so but as he which has called you is holy, this is the fifth one of these admonitions here, so be you holy. God is holy. And we're supposed to be like God. We're supposed to have this family likeness as we've been brought into his family. So we are to reflect him. You know, it's inevitable that children will become like their parents. So if you see, you know, really children, then look at the parents. I mean, but actually there's a, there's a truth in that because if you look at the parents, you see characteristics and traits that you see reflected in the children. And, and as a parent myself, I'm so, so aware that things I say, things I do will be picked up by my children. We, we've often laughed as a family around the table, how easily Sheree will pick up things from the other girls, things they say or little attitudes or little comments. She will pick those things up. She's like a sponge, just soaking things up at the moment. You know, well, in the spiritual sense, we are supposed to be like our father. Our father is perfect. He's holy because he is holy. We are to become like him. Of course, in Romans 12, we're told that it's to be through the, the, the transformation, the renewing of our minds that these things happen, that we start to think differently. And we're told that we're to be holy in all manner of conversation. That, that term conversation in the King James sp speaks of lifestyle. So in, in every aspect of our lives, we're to be like God. There's not a part of our life that we can put to one side. And of course, this is the verse we ended on last week. Because it is written, be you holy for I am holy. And of course, Leviticus is the, the go-to book for holiness. You know, you read through Leviticus. In fact, I've just finished with Amita. We've just finished reading through Leviticus. You know, and it's not an easy book to read through, but it's an amazing book to study. You know, it's one of the, for, for a number of commentators, I think J. Vernon McGee highlights it as one of his favourites. Spurgeon uh, said that Leviticus was one of his favourite, if not his favourite book. And one of the reasons commentators speak that way regarding Leviticus, because although it's full of bloodshed and all these things, it just speaks of God's perfection and holiness and the gulf that exists between us and a holy God. And yet now God says to us, because of what Christ has accomplished, that we are to be holy, that we can be holy. I mean, this isn't just a, a, a request that's impossible to fulfill. What God says is, I want you to be holy and I give you the ability and the strength and the power to become holy. It's not just a command that you can't fulfill because through the grace that we have been given, we can walk a holy life. And it's not by a series of battles that we overcome, learning how to defeat sin by ourselves. That's not how it works. You know, you think of Israel. I mean, the children right now are looking at what it was like for Joshua to uh, cross over into the land, to lead the children of Israel against these formidable enemies. I mean, Jericho was was a major city. You know, and they went up against a number of these giant tribes. There was uh, seven in those. There was three that were fell before they went into the land. And there was another seven that fell in the land. A very interesting parallel with Revelation there, for those of you who are familiar. Um, but there were seven powerful giant tribes in the land of Canaan. They didn't defeat them because they tried really hard or because they had a good strategy. They defeated them because the Lord was with them. Do you remember that verse that the children are learning this morning that Connie ran out to us? You know, that we're to be strong and of good courage. You know, we're to not be dismayed. We're to not fear. Why? 
not because we've got some little clever way of, of working things out. No, it's because God is with us, because the Lord God will be with us wherever we go. Okay, so in our life, we can be holy. This isn't a, a call to something we can't do. It's a call to something that we should now take advantage of. Once upon a time, we couldn't do this. We couldn't live a holy life. For the people in the world, they can't do this. But what Peter is telling us is, you can now live this way. And you are expected to live this way. Because God has done everything. You just simply need to open your arms and say, Lord, give me your holiness. Make me holy. You know, and let me just say again that holy isn't boring. Uh, There's this uh, mindset, of course, the world has that they speak of holy and people think of stained glass windows and pews and, you know, chanting and singing, you know, hymns and so on. Uh, You know, and that's not holiness. Holiness speaks of God's perfection. But in, in that holiness, there's joy. There's a beauty. You know, Scripture speaks of the beauty of holiness and it really is something that's so magnificent, so wonderful, that becoming holy in our lives, in our walk, is not something we should look at as a, oh, does that mean I can't do this and I can't do that? It's not about what we can't do. It's about now what we can do. You know, and who wouldn't want to be rid of all the, the stresses and the, the troubles, the, the strife that we carry around typically in life? That can go. When we walk with the Lord, when we have that, that holy character, because we recognize that God is in complete control and every step we're taking should be in step with his. So, okay, that's a summary of where we got to last time. Uh, let's jump into the next um, section. We're going to try and make a run for the end of the chapter, but I'm actually going to do this slightly differently this morning. Um, we're going to go through in a minute and we're going to pick up verse 17. Uh, but before we pick up verse 17, what I want to do is actually go to the end of the chapter uh, and then work our way backwards. OK, so um, and, and you're, hopefully you'll, you'll see why, why we're doing this, because I was reading this through last night. It was a lovely evening. I was sat in the garden um, just just reading this passage through, just meditating and praying over it. And I got to the end of it and I thought, actually, you know what? We kind of need to start at the end and work back to understand what Peter's saying. So we're going to go through verse by verse in a minute. But I want to start with the last verse and then work backwards. So just just jump to verse 25 in your Bibles with me. What what Peter says there is, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Okay, and then he says, and this is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. Okay, so what he's saying The word of God, which lasts forever. This is God's plan revealed, of course, in the pages of scripture, personified in Jesus Christ. This is the word of God. It's from everlasting. It's from before the foundation of the world. It's through eternity. God's word endures forever. We're going to see him quote Isaiah in a short while. But the word of God, God's plan is outside of time. And this word is the word that has been preached to us. The gospel that has been preached to us. What God is saying is that God has stepped into time and rescued us as has been recorded in his word. You and I are beneficiaries of the fact that God has made a this incredible step to come and rescue us. Going back to verse 24, we're reminded that all flesh is as grass. All flesh just fades. And this is the quote from Isaiah. But of course, it's the word of God that, that is eternal, that is everlasting. You know, naturally, we would just fade away. Our, our bodies are, are, are temporal for here and now. But God's word is eternal. And actually, in the previous verse, we're reminded that we have been born again, not of corruptible seed, not just 
born biologically in the natural sense, but we've been born supernaturally. And notice what we're told is by the word of God. You see, this this ties in with this whole idea that we've been looking at uh, uh, from before the foundation of the world. God had chosen us. You know, we have been born again. It's recording God's word. God has revealed that word to us in the gospel. And, you know, as we go to God's word and we look at it, we find our names are there. We find that God has spoken of us personally. And going back to verse 23, uh, sorry, verse 22. He says that we've been pure, we have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit. And this is what we're told effectively because, as Paul puts it in Romans, the love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts. We're to love other people. So, again, the word of God has been preached. God's plan from before the, the foundation of the world. And as we look at it, we find, guess what? That God had picked us. He'd made us part of his team, if you like along with all those that believe and now we're told because we're all part of this one team this one unit this one family we're to love each other i mean it's a poor analogy possibly but you think of a a football team or or whatever else you know when you're on the same side i mean you take it back to maybe for those you can remember that far back to think about school you know and they pick teams to, to play against each other you know you you are picked to be in a particular team well you're on the same side as everybody else in your team you know, well, we're on the winning team for a start, which is, is just a wonderful thing to know ahead of the game. But actually, all those in our team now, we are working together with them. And this is what Peter is trying to say to us, that we're to love each other. We're part of this unit working together. That's why it's so important we pray for each other. We lift each other before the throne. That's why we should continue to pray for the persecuted church around the world, for our brothers and sisters. We are part of the same team. And this love that God has shown us and shed abroad in our hearts through the Holy Spirit, we are to show to other people. So going back a little further, so verse 21, then speaks about the fact that we believe in God. So all of this is possible because we believe in God, but we believe in God because of Jesus, who God raised from the dead. And verse 20 tells us that he was very, this is Jesus, before the foundation of the world was manifest that he would appear at the time in history he did, that through his life, through his death, through his resurrection, we might have hope in God and God's plan and purpose, which is revealed through his word. Again, he speaks of that precious blood. And we'll come back to to these things again as we kind of go back now through the other way. Uh, and again it goes back to that idea that we've not been redeemed of corruptible things we'll explain that in a second so let's now with that that kind of hopeful summary just hopefully a summary just to get our heads in in the right framework we're we're speaking about what god's word has done what has already been revealed from before the foundation of the world and we are just discovering that our names are in the book of life that this was god's plan for us and as we start to hear these things we should respond accordingly and that's really i think what peter's trying to get across to us so let's jump back into the text so we're going to pick up at verse 17 of chapter one so uh we read and if you call on the father who without respect to person uh, persons judges according to every man's work past the time of your sojourning here in fear now there's a couple of things here. Firstly, it's leading on from the previous section because it's an and, it's a conjunctive in the Greek. Uh, and then the if, all right? What Peter's doing is drawing a line in the sand and saying, okay, if you call on the Father. So amongst us this morning, who is it who, amongst us that would say, yes, I call on the Father. Yes, I believe in God. Well, 
I hope I believe is all of us this morning that are that are here. Maybe those that listen back to this online, you know, but it's draw, drawing a line and saying, which side are you on now? For most of us, for those who are believers, you are on that line of saying, yes, I do call on the Father. Then Peter says, okay, well, remember that God doesn't have respect of persons, and he judges everybody the same, and we judged according to our work. He says, I want you to pass, or you should pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. In other words, you can't just say, well, I'm not Billy Graham, so I don't have to live a holy life. I don't have to live a God life. I, I'm not some great preacher that the Lord is using to, to save countless millions on a different continent. Or, you know, I, I'm not somebody that the Lord has raised up and given a particular ministry. So, you know, I, I, I'm kind of a, a nobody. Nobody really sees me or knows me. You know, what Peter's saying is, no, 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 that doesn't count. We are all the same. In this verse, what Peter's doing is saying we are all the same level. And therefore, we should all spend our time here sojourning in fear. In other words, it's godly respect. Now, again, as I mentioned, the Greek verse begins with this K. This literally is an and, a conjunctive. It just links it to the previous section. And those verses are listed there. If you want to go back and study, you'll see those things that he's already highlighted. And it continues the call to a lifestyle that is different from that of non-Christians. You know, we really should stand out and be seen to be different. <clears throat> here, this is one uh, quote. Here, Peter continues the idea that believers have a new family relationship to God. His goal is to give us motivation for conducting ourselves as obedient children during our short stay on earth. Holiness shows our family likeness. But let me just ask you that question. You know, do you see yourself as sojourning here? Are you here temporarily or do you kind of feel this earth is home? Are we so comfortable with everything that's around us and that's going on in our own particular lives and our situations? The Bible speaks about earth dwellers, those that dwell on the earth. We see a phrase that's repeated often in Revelation. And it really speaks to those that have made this earth their home, that they have chosen to become citizens of this earth. Well, the Bible says that we are not. We are citizens as believers. We are citizens of heaven. That's where we have our citizenship. And so we're not actually from here. We don't. This isn't home for us and it shouldn't be home. Sadly, so many Christians I've met over the years seem to have a, a problem when it comes to eschatology, the end times, thinking about Jesus' return. And they get worried about it. They get frightened because they think about all the things they're going to lose, all the things they, they might have to give up or the things they won't be able to accomplish or do. Well, that just tells a story because it says that they're more connected to the things on earth than they are the things in heaven. You know, we should be so connected to the things in heaven, so looking forward to all that scripture reveals that we can't wait to get out of here. Now, that doesn't mean that we should go around on earth miserable and, uh, and gloomy. You know, we're to have a joy in our hearts because of the hope that is set before us. You know, regardless of what trials we endure, regardless of what situations, you know, but we shouldn't have such a hold on things of earth that we don't want to let go of those things. You know, they should simply be tools that we use now that help us on our journey. They shouldn't be things that are a goal and end in and of themselves. Chung Misler said this, So we are to live according to his absolute standards as strangers. And uh, chapter 2 verse 11 it refers to or terms it aliens. To the world's shifting situational ethics. 
Well, you know, throughout history, this has been the case. But don't we see that right now? The way the world is shifting its views, its opinions, just based upon, you know, whatever happens to be a, a popular media theme or topic or uh, the hot news of the day, how the world shapes its ethics according to those situations. That's not to be us as believers. You know, we need to be so careful what we get behind and support from a worldly perspective, because those things lead often into very, very unhelpful uh, ideas. Charles Spurgeon said this comment really just thinking i think of first corinthians chapter uh, three but also the verse we're looking at here he said be not presumptuous ever remember that as there is a god who is to judge every man you are to be judged and oh that you might through his grace be in such a condition of heart that you shall stand the last test and be found to be full weight when you are put into the balances of the sanctuary which God shall hold with steadfast hand. You know, we're each going to be weighed before God. And what Peter's saying here is, don't think that, you know, I'm not somebody important in God's plan. You know, I'm not a Billy Graham or I'm not a Charles Spurgeon, you know, or a Whitfield or a Wesley or any of those great saints from the past that we often think about. You know, you can't say, well, because I'm not one of those, I don't have to live to the same standard. We're all called to live and be holy before God. And this call goes out, not just to the super saints, you know, whoever, whoever they may be. This goes out to you and I, that in our daily lives, this is what God is calling us to, this life. Again, if you call on the Father who, without respect of persons, judges according to every man's work past the time of your sojourning here. Notice what Peter says to us in fear. Now, that's not to be terrified of God, but it's to show that reverence and that respect is a, a reverential fear that is evidenced by a tender conscience, you know, a watchfulness against temptation and avoiding things that would displease God. That's what Peter is calling us to, you know, in the same way you, you you've probably seen with children and I, I get to see, you know, probably more often than, than maybe we'd like. But, you know, you walk into a room and you see a, a young child uh, suddenly become aware that you're there and they stop in their tracks. And there's that clear moment where they start to assess, am I doing the right thing? Am I about to be told off? Should I be touching this? Should I have got these things out and scattered them all over the floor or done whatever? You know, you see that with children. But that's the idea that we should have that respect that we know what is right and what is wrong. And because we know what is right and what is wrong, and we have that fear and respect of God, we don't do those things. Some people just tend to bury their head in the sand and hope that God isn't watching. Hope that God doesn't see things that are going on. Of course, God sees everything. Psalm 139 makes it very clear. You know, you can go and try and hide anywhere you want. You will never get away from the gaze of God. He can see everything. He knows everything. You can't fool God. You know, we can fool ourselves, but we can never fool God. Okay. So verse 18 carries on. It says, for as much as you know, and this is building on this point, you know, we should live these holy lives, live our time here in fear, in respect and reverence, because for as much as you know, you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers. Now, let me just try and unpack this a little bit, because there's a few uh, allusions here that Peter makes that we might miss uh, if we're not careful. You see, back in Exodus chapter 30, uh, it spoke there of the redeeming of a soul 
by the use or by the giving of a shekel. So typically they would give actually it was, it was a, uh, a silver half shekel that was used that every Jewish male particularly would have to give in exchange for his soul. In other words, they would give this uh, payment to God um, to redeem themselves. And of course, it goes back to uh, their time in Egypt. Uh, God set them free, of course. Um, and, and you can read the, the, the account of these things. But this was the idea that the Jewish uh, individuals had. Now, there's more to this because if we go to uh, Exodus, we'll just read the verses. The Lord spoke unto Moses saying, when thou takest the sum of the children of Israel after their number, then shall they give every man a ransom for his soul unto the Lord when thou numberest them, that there be no plague among them when thou numberest them. This they shall give every one that passes among them that are numbered, as specifically is referring to the males over the age of 20, half a shekel after the shekel of the sanctuary, a shekel is 20 geras, just in case you're wondering, uh, and half a shekel shall be the offering of the Lord. So this was to be given by every uh, Jewish male uh, as to be a ransom for their soul. Now what Peter's comparing it to, saying, you know, we weren't ransomed in that way by you know, silver or gold, which is corruptible, which doesn't, doesn't last, it's perishable. We're ransomed by something so much greater, i.e. the blood of Jesus. Now, Jameson, Fawcett and Brown just make this comment regarding that portion in Exodus. Uh, this was not a voluntary contribution, but a ransom for the soul or lives of the people. It was required from all classes alike, and a refusal to pay implied a willful exclusion from the privileges of the sanctuary, as well as exposure to divine judgments. So they would pay this money so that they would benefit from the privileges of the sanctuary, and again, be uh, excluded from divine judgment. That, that was the idea, so the wrath of God wouldn't come upon them. What is interesting, isn't it, when you think of what Jesus has done, that he's made this payment effectively for us of some, from something so much more valuable, that being his own blood, that we also now are included in the privileges of the heavenly sanctuary. And we also are now uh, not going to be exposed to divine judgment as a result of these things. It was actually this very situation that crops, uh, crops up in Matthew 17. We read there that when they were come to Capernaum, that they received tribute money. Uh, sorry, they that received tribute money came to Peter and said, Does not your master pay tribute? This tribute money is the money. This was typically that annual tax that was upon the people that had to be given to the sanctuary or by this time the temple. And Peter re responds and says, Yes. And when he was coming to the house, Jesus prevented him saying, what thinkest thou, Simon, of whom do the kings of the earth take custom or tribute, of their own children or of strangers? Peter said unto him, of strangers. And Jesus said unto him, then the children are free. Now, the point that Jesus is making here is, is, is quite important because he's saying, you know, those who are needing to give this tribute, those who, who need this um uh, payment to be made to redeem their souls they have to give it but the family the children those who are part of the family those who are are not in that position are free jesus was saying because he was the son of god because he was god manifest in the flesh he had no need to pay this ransom for his soul and so this, this is the point he makes he says notwithstanding lest we should offend them go down to the sea and cast a hook and take up the fish that first comest up, and when thou hast opened his mouth, thou shalt find a piece of money, take that and give it unto them for me and thee. 
Now, Jesus, again, just fulfilling that which the law required and so that he wouldn't cause offense, uh, didn't want people getting off on a, a tangent uh, and so on to understand that, that he was com- uh, fulfilling the law effectively. But it's interesting, actually, that, you know, so much of the focus here goes on to the fish. The fish, by the way, uh, quite probable, this whole idea, there is a fish that's uh, in that region that typically will eat shiny things. I suppose a little bit like a magpie uh, bird would go and pick up shiny things. This fish particularly would uh, be attracted to shiny objects. And so that's probably why uh, the commentators think they were eating this core, taking this coin and it was in its mouth and so on. So not really important, but I'll just share that with you. But then we go on verse 18, for as much as you know that you are not redeemed with corruptible things, silver and gold, from your vain conversation. What what Peter's saying here is your old lifestyle. You know, you, you redeemed not from silver and gold, from your old lifestyle uh, received by tradition of your fathers. It was, you know, the old life was devoid of false and truth, success. Um, yeah, it, it was of no purpose. And that's what Peter's saying. You haven't been purchased from that uh, old old life for no reason at all. This is something that God has done. And it speaks about, again, the manner of life and conduct. It says, you were not redeemed with things of little value from a life that was uh, devoid of truth and purpose. And he goes on, um, this, this way of life that they'd been passed down by their uh, fathers and forefathers and so on, going historically. It's speaking about, you, you, you've entered into a brand new relationship a brand new life. And you're not just to follow the same old ways of doing things that had been previously done. And he says that we have been purchased with the precious blood of Christ. Now that, that statement could stop right there. You know, that's the, the price that was paid to redeem us and to purchase us, not based upon tradition, based upon something that God does intervening in the affairs. Now think to where we started the study of the word of God. That God has revealed ahead of time what he was going to do, step into to time and to rescue us, to snatch us from the, the fire of corruption, as it were. But Peter goes on and adds to this and says, not, uh, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. What Peter's doing, of course, here is making allusion to the Passover lamb, that Passover lamb that had to be taken on the 10th day of the month. You know, these were these were the requirements. Um you know, just as the sacrificial lambs were to be without defect, Christ was sinless and uniquely qualified as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. You, you know, one of the um, um, qualifications, in a sense, was given by the shepherds. Now, we've discussed this and talked about it before. But Jesus, born in that, that lambing tower on the edge of Bethlehem, the uh, migdal Eda. this is exactly what micah says that's where jesus was to be born he gives you the not only the town bethlehem but the location and it was born in that place and the reason that the shepherds are visited by the angels it, it was very specific they had to come and acknowledge that he was a perfect lamb without blemish because their job the shepherd's job in those fields around bethlehem was to prepare or to look after the lambs that were to be used as sacrifices in Jerusalem, and typically the Passover was the key event of the year. So the lambs that those shepherds would look after, they had to verify that they were without spot, they were without blemish. That's why those lambs would be wrapped in these swaddling bands to stop them threshing around and hurting themselves. Those, th- those swaddling bands, by the way, 
were actually made up of old priest's garments. So when the priest's clothing had got old and were no, no longer fit for use, they would be passed to the shepherds. The shepherds would use those garments to wrap up these lambs to stop them thrashing. And of course, when Jesus is born, as they go to to this tower, to Migdalida, um, this, this tower of the flock, as, uh, as uh, Micah speaks of, as they get there, they find Jesus, this spotless, perfect baby, wrapped in priestly garments. The first clothing that Jesus wears are that of the priest. It's just a wonderful picture. That's why the shepherds were chosen. There was no randomness to this. They came to acknowledge that Jesus was the perfect lamb. Now, of course, the, the story, the, the Christmas messages we have here is completed because sometime later we have another visit, this time to acknowledge that Jesus is the perfect king. He's the rightful king. He's the one who is to sit on the throne of David. And the Magi come to acknowledge Jesus is the king. So the shepherds come to acknowledge and, and, and qualify Jesus as the perfect lamb. The Magi come to acknowledge that Jesus is the rightful king. And of course, there's a distance, there's a time between the two. The, the shepherds come first because Jesus came first to suffer as the Lamb of God. When Jesus returns, he'll come as the King of Kings to rule and reign over the earth. That's why there was that gap, typically at least two years, between the shepherds arriving at the birth of Christ and the Magi coming sometime later who visited Jesus up in Nazareth, not in Bethlehem. The Magi did not go to Bethlehem. We've talked about these things before, but you know, when you understand scripture, you see why these things are so important and why tradition has messed up the Christmas story so terribly. But moving on. The Feast of Passover, they were to take a lamb on the 10th day of the first month. This is what we're told in the book of Exodus chapter 12. The lamb had to be perfect, without spot, without blemish. And on the 14th day of the first month, they were to kill the lamb literally between the evenings is what they're told in in exodus is the word bayan in the hebrew and it means between and of course in egypt they did kill the lamb in the evening but they had a 24-hour window in which to do it the blood of the lamb was to be put on the lintels and the doorposts and anybody who passed under the blood into the house would be safe from god's judgment upon the firstborn of the land so this was the the, the situation with passover now of course when we come to what we refer to as Passion Week. This is the week that Jesus um, uh, spent with his disciples leading up to the crucifixion and the resurrection. On the 10th day, Jesus was taken. That was Palm Sunday. That was the day that Jesus rides into Jerusalem and effectively taken by the people acknowledged as they sing Psalm 118, this great psalm declaring that Jesus is the one who is coming in the name of the Lord. Jesus intentionally arranges everything. He sends his disciples to go and get the donkey, fulfilling the prophecy from Zechariah. And this very day was the day as prophesied uh, by Daniel that Jesus, the Messiah, the Prince, would come. And again, the very, very day, Jesus rides into Jerusalem on the 10th. Now remember, the Passover lamb was to be taken on the 10th and kept to the 14th. Well, when we get to the 14th, and the, the evening before, because the Jewish day starts in the evening, Jesus is celebrating the Passover with his disciples. But on the 14th of the month, the 14th is when Jesus then is crucified, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world. This is what Peter says. And all these things written down in scripture, these things would have been, have been recorded, uh, particularly in the Feast of Israel, because Paul tells us in the book of uh, Corinthians in chapter 15, what the gospel is, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, the foreign all written down, not just historically, but actually before the foundation of the world, we're told these things are recorded. 
and that he died and rose again according to the scriptures and jump forward to where i started because the scriptures aren't just that which were written down by moses moses simply recorded what had already been settled in heaven god's word is eternal that which we have we tend to think was written from around about 1400 BC as Moses started penning these things and collating the accounts, which obviously go back to, you know, creation somewhere about 6,000 uh, years ago. That That's what scripture reveals. Yeah. We tend to think the scripture has this kind of time span of when it started and, and so on. And it concludes in round about, uh, or somewhere just before 70 AD as revelations finished and the, the books of the new Testament, um seemingly all written before jerusalem um was destroyed by the romans um but all, all that aside you know the scripture actually is outside of time god's word is eternal these things are from before the foundation of the world that's what makes this book so incredible that's why god can reveal future events before they happen as if they were today's headlines again so speaking of jesus this lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world but was manifest in these last times for you notice that last word there for you jesus has been manifest not not just in a sense for you and i for for all those who would believe including abraham isaac jacob all the saints of the old testament and so on but jesus has been revealed in his last times for you for you and i we are beneficiaries of god's incredible intervention in history in time stepping into this world to come and to rescue us again notice that foreordained you know, there, there is no afterthought. This was God's plan. And we're going to get onto this in a minute. As, this is why I started with the end and went back. Because the word of God has revealed all of this. It was all written down, all in God's word, before even you were born. Again, all was foreseen and prepared beforehand. And we're told that, who by him do believe in God that raised him up from the dead and gave him glory, that your faith and hope might be in God. So we're told that the reason that God has done this and has raised him from the dead and so on is, is so that we would have hope. Now, of course, there was a bigger part of the picture, but an integral part of this is that we'd have hope. We'd look at the resurrection, and it would give us that confidence of believing in what God has done through Jesus, and that this hope would help to carry us through life, but it would also change the direction of our lives just as we saw back in 17 that we were past the time of our sojourning here in fear again notice again the confidence in the resurrection as the foundation and certainty of our faith peter was under no illusion i mean he knew this was a real event he'd seen jesus resurrected he actually got out of the boat and walked towards jesus after the resurrection they had breakfast on the shore together you know peter had seen peter knew jesus after the resurrection and records these things for us and says that we actually have hope in these things you know it was an eyewitness of all of this stuff you know god has no other prophet that will come after you know other religions will try and tell you that there were other prophets that superseded jesus you know but jesus is the number one and god has demonstrated that by raising him from the dead and this is in a sense what peter alludes to too you know, no other religion has a leader that has been raised from the dead to prove that they were the one that God had anointed and chosen. And then we told verse 22, seeing you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the spirit. Notice it's not just of our own effort. This purification is through the work of the spirit. And it leads to this. This is what it should lead to unfeigned or, or something that is real something that's not false unfeigned love of the brethren 
not of the whole world okay and it says see that you love one another with a pure heart fervently now of course we we should uh love our enemies that is also true and jesus says that but very specifically we are to love one another we are to love everyone who's part of this same team we've all been handpicked by jesus by god the father we've been invited into this family we've been made brethren together we're all one in this new family and so we're to love each other we, we should be so excited there should be a real joy whenever we get the chance to meet another christian another believer somebody who who shares the kind of history we had but also shares the eternity we're going to you know it's like i guess you know waiting at a, a bus stop and then finding somebody standing next to you that's going to the same destination for the same purpose you know and that's the kind of idea again probably poor analogy but hopefully you get the idea that you you meet someone that's going to the same place and it's exciting you know and you build up a, a camaraderie a friendship or you know in in time past you know, we've gone on holiday and you meet somebody, uh, you know, a Medway service station or bump into somebody and you happen to realise they're going to the same place. You know, for for those of us that have travelled down to Creation Fest um, before, you know, as you get closer and closer, you start to see other people who you recognise are going to the same destination. And there's an excitement that builds because you know we're all going for the same reasons, the same purpose. Well, that's the kind of hope we should have as Christians. You know, as you're driving along and you see another car and you see it loaded up with all the camping gear, you know, and sometimes you drive along, and you, you see these cars and then suddenly one of those cars will pull off and you realize actually they weren't going the same direction. There's a sadness in your heart because you want to see everybody going to the same place. But then you see others and you know they're going to the same destination. We should have that love for each other of knowing that we are going to the same place. We're going to spend eternity together. And so Peter says we should love one another with a pure heart. And he says fervently, I'm really emphasizing this is the way we should be toward each other. We should be so excited that we're on this journey together. Again, that that word uh, that we have, that unfeigned, uh, the Greek word there just really means without hypocrisy. And all evil thoughts and feelings regarding one's brothers and sisters in Christ must be removed. You know, for his followers are to love deeply from the heart. Sadly, there are lots of divisions that are seen within the church. And of course, we have to be careful regarding doctrine. But there should be a love that pervades anything that is that is not heresy. You know, there are we're going to have differences of opinions. That's true. You know, we need to be very, very careful that we don't start uh, not fellowshipping with other believers because they have a slightly different view on Scripture on certain points. You know, there are some things that are non-negotiable and they, they have to be held to. But there are other things that so many people divide on that really it's so sad because we'll spend eternity in heaven and we're all going to find out that, you know, guess what? We were wrong on a bunch of stuff. You know, we, we need to be right on the fundamentals. We need to be right on all the things that scripture clearly teaches. And there are some things that, that we would absolutely nail our colors to the mast and say, no, this is unequivocally, unequivocally what we must believe and hold to. And, you know, those things we read about in the book of Acts are very clear uh, instructions and guidelines, the, the doctrine that we read in the New Testament, the apostles doctrine and so on. You know, but we need to be so careful that we don't just reject other believers. And also remember that there was once a time in your walk with the Lord where you didn't believe all the things you believe now. You didn't understand the things you understood now. You know, probably when you first understood a particular doctrine, it may have sounded strange to you. You know, and you may have rejected it initially. You know, but then you come to a point as you grow and mature. You know, and I've certainly been very blessed 
uh, to have had people in my walk with the Lord that have been very patient with me as I've kind of understood scripture, I've understood things through the years. And particularly as a, as a young person, trying to unravel these things and to have people that didn't say, no, you must believe this. No, they were patient. And of course, you know, if the Holy Spirit is the one that's doing that work in us. We need to be allow, allow the Holy Spirit. We mustn't become, um, the word Oswald Chambers uses is amateur providences in other people's lives. You know, let, let's pray that God will do that work in them as he's done in us. So, so Mr. says this, this kind of loving, this agapeo, uh, can only uh, come from a changed heart, from one whose motives are pure and who seeks to give more than he takes. This love is to be expressed not shallowly, but deeply. And again, the Greek word means at full stretch or uh, and, uh, in an all out manner with an intense and a strain. That, that's how we're to love. It's not to be something that we just do in our spare time. It should be a, a heartfelt, all the time, continuous thing that we are wanting to bless and encourage and help and support each other. So again, just this, 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 this verse, uh, you know, it's really a positive result of obeying the truth is a purified life. And again, that fervently, you know, Psalm 119 verse 9 says, how can a young man keep his way pure? Well, guess what? We're going to get onto the word in a second now, but by taking heed thereto according to thy word that's how we keep pure john Mizzler says this as the trials refine faith so obedience to god's word refines character one who has purified himself by living according to god's word has discovered the joy of obedience a changed life should also be evidenced by a changed relationship with god's other children a purified life allows one to love purely those who share the same faith Verse 23, being born again. Now, Peter again will use this expression, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God, which lives and abides forever. So again, using this, this expression, we saw it back in verse three. Uh, we've experienced this new birth. It's not just John chapter three that deals with being born again here. Peter refers to it again. And it's a supernatural event that's made possible for them to obey the truth, to purify themselves and love the brethren. That word incorruptible, um, you know, <laughs> then we ask the question, is incorruptible seed corruptible? Well, no, by definition. This is, this is a real challenge to those that would argue that you could lose your salvation. You know, in fact, there's many, many scriptures that show that to be false, that, 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 that idea and that doctrine. But you see, here we're told that we've been born of incorruptible seed. Now, therefore, it's not something that can be corrupted. Again, this change... Uh, in their lives, you know, would not die because it took place through God's word, which is in, uh, this imperishable, living and enduring. This is what God's word is. You know, it won't ever fade away. And then we're told this quote from Isaiah. For all flesh is as grass and the glory of man as the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower thereof falleth away. You know, Peter, again, is uh, supporting this exhortation again, verse 22, that he's already made by quoting Isaiah now. Uh, and all that is born of perishable seed will wither and it will fall. But God's word is eternal. God's word again, where we started this, this, this time this morning, from before the foundation of the world, has foreordained that you would be saved, that you would be part of his family. So our life should reflect this hope, this calling. And the fact that we're on this journey with other believers should impact the way we treat each other. Isaiah says this, all flesh is as grass and the uh, goodliness thereof is as the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flower fades because the spirit of the Lord bloweth upon it. Surely the people is grass. The grass withereth and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. 
Testament. Holy Scripture, that God's word is settled in heaven forever. But the word of the Lord endures forever. Uh, this is wonderful. These things won't change. You know, we're not going to be partway through eternity and then we'll find that actually it's all come to an end. And there's, you know, no, God's word endures for eternity. And this is the word by, uh, sorry, this is the word which by the gospel is preached to you. Now notice, again, this is the word of the Lord. This is what has been preached to us. James 1.18 says, of his own will he began us with the word of truth. You see, it's not just that we chose God. There's, of course, truth in that, that we've responded. But actually, he chose us before the foundation of the world. He handpicked us. Again, this word is imperishable. You know, this is one of the key content of Peter's preaching here. You know, and this word which by the gospel is preached unto you, well, is the gospel that we've received, that we've responded to, and, you know, you come to that place of understanding that God had already, already from before the foundation of the world. We're just catching up with what God has already recorded in his word. And we're gradually realizing and we're starting to walk this walk now that God has already foreordained for us. It really is quite a breathtaking concept to, to get our heads around. And, you know, his hearers really must be affected by its life changing power. And that's what he's going to come on to in chapter two in the first three verses, which by God's grace, we will pick up next week. So please read ahead, study chapter two. Uh, we'll see how far we get. I don't know how far we're going to get next week, but um, if the Lord tarries and we're not with him, which is fine by me if we are, uh, if the Lord tarries, then we'll pick up from there next week. Let's bow our hearts, shall we? Father God, we thank you for these things this morning. Lord, just an incredible concept that's so hard for our tiny brains to really fathom that your word in advance had recorded all of these things, your plan, the purpose you had, the fact that Jesus, the son of the father, would come into this world to live that perfect sinless life, to be born as a, a tiny baby, but as a perfect spotless lamb, later to become the, the king, to sit on the throne of David, the king of kings. And yet, Lord, that Jesus would go to the cross to, to die for us, to purchase our freedom, that we could be born again, that we could now enter into that which had already been foreordained for us. And Lord, what a privilege. And because, Lord, we start to understand these things, Lord, please let it impact our lives. Lord, as, as we read right at the start of this, Lord, that we should pass the time of our sojourning here in fear. Lord, let us love you and show you that respect, Lord, knowing what is right and what is wrong and choosing that which is right because of our love for you, because of the grace you give to enable us to walk, Lord, in victory, to walk by faith. So we thank you for these things, Lord. Be with us, keep us safe, keep us close to you, we pray. And looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.